Well, it's still morning. Good morning. (laughs) If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Exodus chapter 4. And before I read that, um, Tuesday night, I'm going to be at uh, Rawls Church, and um, I'm going to be in a class with Sal. (laughs) And it's a cool class. This is a great group of people, isn't it? Um, that so, so you know, my wife and I are walking out last Tuesday night. My wife, not not last Tuesday before, because we had the Easter break, and she turns to me and she goes, "Wow, do you realize who those people are?" She was just blown away about what's in the room. She she's very she loves coming with me. Um, you say, "Does your wife always come to hear you speak?" No, uh, that's because you know. She has better things to do sometimes. Uh, you say, you mean your wife doesn't hang on every word you speak? No, I've tried to get her to do that. Um, but she loves going to Rawls. That group, I think you guys are, she likes you guys better than she likes, you know, listening to me. So anyway, I don't know what that means. Anyway, um, I want to tell you a story that comes from the book of Exodus. But before I want to do that, I, I want to set something up for you. Do you remember the story when Jesus is... Um, invited to dinner to the house of Simon the Pharisee. Do you remember that story? And Pharisees were um, basically very highly respected conservative religious leaders. And he invites, you know, Jesus to come to dinner, probably to check him out. And it's a formal dinner. And right in the middle of the dinner, in comes a hoe, a prostitute. I'll explain that to you later. Um, And she comes and she starts pawing him. You know, she starts crying and wiping her his feet with her hair and and crying and 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 Simon, he goes, you know, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman who's touching him. And then I love what Jesus does. It says Looking at the woman, he says to Simon. And then in a threefold move, he lifts this woman who's just been totally looked down upon and sneered at and lifts her up in three steps and takes the arrogant, uptight, religious, judgmental person and brings him down. In other words, he's a master teacher He was speaking to two audiences at once. It's amazing what he does. I mean, mean, that's what Sal and I were doing. I've kind of learned right along with you guys. Kind of looking forward to Tuesday because, well, I'll tell you that Tuesday night. Uh, Because I'm learning, watching Jesus teach. In fact, the more I read him, the more I realize I got a long ways to go to be a teacher. He's amazing. But the Old Testament is like the New. These stories have double audiences. So we want to look at a story in Exodus this morning and we want to see the two audiences that your author has in mind. Okay? So let's go back to Exodus chapter 4, verse um, 18. And let me read this to you. So Moses went 
And he returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. You have my blessing. Now, is that true? Is that why he's going to Egypt? Not really, huh? He's going because he's seen some very interesting shrubbery. Moses did. He sees the burning bush. And the burning bush says to do what? Go to Egypt and get my people out. Does Moses want to go? No, all through chapter 3, he's arguing with God. And, and his argument kind of runs like this. Um, uh, who am I? And the Lord says, it doesn't matter who you are. It's who I am. Well, well they won't believe me. Okay, here's some signs. Well, can I have a guarantee? Let me have a special name of power. No. And then finally, I don't speak well. And the Lord says, you know, I made the mouth. And Moses is arguing, arguing, arguing. Because see, Moses seems to be preoccupied with someone. Who is that? Himself. He's like most of the world. And God keeps saying, hey, Moses, it's all about your people. And Moses keeps saying, no, it's all about me. Well, he takes the job. Moses does. And he leaves Midian. And he goes to Egypt. Now, if you skip ahead to chapter into chapter four, verse um, twenty-seven, no, excuse me, verse twenty-nine. Let me show you what happens here. Um, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And if you can imagine that being in that meeting that night, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he did the signs in the sight of the people, those signs God gave him. And then watch what happens. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. How successful of a meeting was this? Must have been really fun to have been Moses that night, right? You run the meeting and you and Aaron are walking away and go, wow, all the people believe in God. Now, the next day, Moses goes and sees Pharaoh and says, let my people go worship for three days. You know, God has visited us and he has spoken. He wants us to do this. And Pharaoh looks at it and say, three days, my eye, you guys want to leave. And he knows that the Israelites are a key and essential part of their economy. Do presidents in the United States get elected if the economy goes bad? No. Remember, remember when uh, years ago during the, in the 90s, uh, one of the can candidates said, it's the economy, stupid. And he won because the economy was bad and the guy that was in lost. It's how we are. We vote on the economy. And so Pharaoh isn't going to let an essential part of the economy go. And he says, you know, I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to let Israel go. Now, the funny thing is, if you know enough about Egyptian religion, Pharaoh knew 
enslaving people who came as guests to his country was against his religion. We know that about his religion. But the economy trumped his faith, trumped his knowledge of good and evil. And so he turns to Moses and he says, Nah, get out. As soon as Moses leaves, Pharaoh calls all his, his, uh, his lieutenants together and he says, All right, you go tell the Israelites they still have to make their quota of bricks, but we're not going to give them straw. Because see, that's what they were doing. They would, the Egyptians would deliver the straw and the straw would be mixed in with the bricks that the Israelites were making and they'd make bricks. And how many of you do construction work? Do you pour cement without rebar? Why not? Strong. Hey, strong enough. The straw in ancient brickmaking was the rebar. So they had to have it. And so now the Israelites have to scour all over the countryside and go through all these farms and lose all this time gathering straw. Then they have to make their quota of bricks and they couldn't do it. And so the slave masters began to beat them. And they got really upset. So, so let me show you what happens in verse 20, chapter 5. And when they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to him, to them, Moses and Aaron, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the, the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Are they happy with Moses? Were they glad he came from the desert had talked to a bush? No. Have they changed from chapter 4 to chapter 5? Yeah. So watch what happens. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why has it just sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and neither have you delivered your people at all. How encouraged is Moses? Not at all. I love the very next verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do. And then it begins. It starts with uh, Pharaoh being down at the Nile River and Moses comes along. And when Moses is through, the entire Nile River is filled with blood. Fish are dying. There goes their protein and their diet. It's ruining their economy. A great part of their economy is destroyed. Uh, and then plague after plague after plague begins. And Pharaoh gets educated as to who is Yahweh. You know, the scholars say that every plague, if we knew enough, because it's been destroyed over the years, but if we knew enough about you know, Egyptian religion, every plague was representing a certain Egyptian god. We know they worshipped a frog god. And we know they worshipped death god and on down the line. And we know they worshipped the Nile from Ezekiel 29, I think it is. But we now know God shows his majesty and his power over all the gods of Egypt, over all the religion. And of course, God said, you watch what I do. They'll drive you out. And of course, that happens. And they are driven out. They are let go. And before they left, did they get back wages? 
Do you realize that? They were allowed to go to the Egyptians and ask gold. And the Egyptians were so freaked out. They go, yeah, take everything you want to get out. And they got their back wages because God's fair. Well, go to chapter 14. They're, they're, they're leaving. They've seen 10 plagues, all these miracles. All this stuff has taken place. God has kept his word. And uh, go to verse 10. They're, they're about to leave Egypt. But as they're trying to get out, they run into a body of water. And they can't get across it. And then all of a sudden they look up and up over the horizon come 600 chariots. In modern day terms, 600 tanks or helicopters. And behind them, the greatest army in that region ever, the great Egyptian army. And it ain't a happy army because every person in that army had lost a child because of these Jews. And the Jews are a bunch of unarmed, runaway slaves. And you have 600 chariots and totally professionally trained soldiers coming right at them. And they're going to go through them like a hot knife through butter. And so watch what happens. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt... Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. For we have been better for, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in this wilderness. Are they appreciative of Moses' ministry? But watch verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and watch. Watch what he'll do. Who does that sound like? God. Has Moses changed? Here's this sniveling, oh, why'd you send me here? It ain't going well. Chapter 5. Chapter 14, watch you guys. He'll do it. And he does. What happens to the Egyptian army? They go through an, a fantastic chariot wash, free of charge. And they're all destroyed. And this great army that could have harassed them and cut them to pieces right then or harassed them for the rest of their stay in the wilderness are totally taken out. The greatest army in that part of the world, probably the greatest army on earth at the time. He's destroyed. All by God's actions. And then what happens in chapter 15? Miriam gets all the gals together. They pull out their tambourines and they get down. They sing up a huge storm. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. And it was so beautiful they have never forgotten it. The Hebrew, when you read it, is very, very old. This is such an old and ancient song. And they sing this song of glory and majesty to God. And then towards the end of chapter 15, after the singing's died down and the service is over, okay, um, go to chapter 15 and go to verse 22, okay? So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no what? No water. And when they came to Marah, 
They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, and therefore the name of it is called Marah. Marah in Hebrew means bitter. So don't name your daughter bitter. Anyway. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute as an ordinance for them, where he attested them. And then look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, and there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, and so they camped there by the waters. And then in verse 1 of chapter 16, they journeyed from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And then the congregation, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against who? Is this a happy group to travel with? And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Are they grateful? What do they want to do? They want to go back to the world. Where were they? What were they in Egypt? Slaves. Well, what happens is God begins to feed them and let bread fall from heaven every day. Every single day they walk out and miraculously there is bread. It won't fall on the seventh day. And if they collect too much during the week, it rots. But on the sixth day before the seventh day, if they collect double, it doesn't rot. And every single day they experience a miracle. Then in chapter 17, they travel on, 17 verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephaim. But there was no what? Water. Um, how good is God with water? He seems to be rather good. He can take out armies with it. He can turn bitter water sweet. He can turn the entire Nile to blood when he wants to, to show Pharaoh that he doesn't really know what he's doing. And now they, they come and there's no water to drink. So watch what they do. Therefore, the peoples contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses. And they said, Why is it you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Okay, a couple questions. Who saw the miracles of the plagues? Moses or Israel? Both. Who saw the salvation at the Red Sea? Both. Who saw that manna miraculously fell every day? Both. Who saw the waters turn sweet and the new 
waters become fresh. Because by the way, he gave them water again. And you realize when Moses, um, in, in the, um, later on in chapter 17, they're going to get attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites are professional fighters. They, they live by the sword and they start picking off the, the parts of the Israelite caravan. And so Moses finally is instructed by the Lord to stand up and fight. And they don't know how to fight. They're a bunch of runaway slaves. But as long as that man's arms are in the air, they win. When they come down, they lose. And so they have to help him keep his arms in the air. Is Moses helping them? And are they grateful? No. How many of you have junior hires? How many of you understand now the Israelites? Yeah, my kids thought Karen and I, my wife and I, all became stupid when they hit about 13. <laughs> they all of a sudden became super smart. And we became super dumb. And you say, well, which, how many children do you have? Four. Which of your four did that to you? Only four of the four. <laughs> In fact, I, have, I used to go to a dentist over here. He used to say, junior hires should run the world while they still know everything. <laughs> and have you ever thought of, hmm, thank you. We brought you into the world. We fed you. We struggled to get these clothes on you. And then you ingratefully kept growing and outgrew them all. And, and of course, they were boys. They just destroyed them all. Had three of those. And, and on down the line, and then you feed them, and you, they do all this stuff, and then they want the new clothes. You know, I remember the, one time my wife says, you know, they all want new tennis shoes. I says, okay, take them to, you know, to Target. She goes, they won't wear those. I said, they're tennis shoes. They're just going to ruin them. I mean, really, it'll last a year. They want Vans. They really want Nikes. I thought, my eye, I'd have to sell one of them. They buy them Nikes. <laughs> so we went to Vans. It was halfway in between, and, you know, and then their teeth went bad. We had to fix that, you know. And, and then they turned to junior high and they go, you know, boy, I remember that. That was a hard time. What's the difference between an Israelite and a Moses? There's a double audience in this story, isn't there? You can see the story from one side or you could see it from the other. Well, go over to chapter 20. They get to Mount Sinai. Chapter 19, by the way, is a chapter do not read to junior hires or grammar school kids before they go to bed at camp or they'll be up all night. It'll scare the daylights out of them. Uh, um, it, God kind of thunders from the mountain and shakes the whole thing and freaks them all out and then he gives them his word because the best way to get someone's attention sometimes is to wake them up. Okay. But in chapter 20, he now speaks from the mountain and we get his will. He takes him and he says in verse, chapter 20, verse 1, And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I saved you. Therefore, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? Is that reasonable? And no, no images. Now, let's say um, one of you guys has got your eye on one of these young girls in the church and she finally gives you some attention back. And so finally, 
you ask her to marry her, you, and she says yes, and you're pretty excited, and your families are excited, and there's a big wedding, and, and there's seven bridesmaids and seven groomsmen, and there's a big dinner afterwards, and so it's just one big, you know, great wedding, and, and Pastor Manny does the wedding, and everybody thinks, wow, Manny did such a great, what a beautiful service, you know, everybody's having, the food was great, I mean, it's a perfect wedding, good food, you know, and, um, and then you're driving your bride back, and, um, you know, the reception's over, and she says, oh, by the way, um, uh, could you drop me off over here? And you go, well, we're on our way for our honeymoon. She goes, I know, I know, but uh, could you drop me off over here? And, he, and you go, well, why? And she says, well, I have a date with Fred tonight. <laughs> Is there something wrong? <laughs> okay, go over to chapter 32. God gives them the Ten Commandments through Moses. Then he gives them explanations of the Ten Commandments in the chapters that follow. So they learn how to to love one another and to love God in more detail. And then he gives them in careful and beautiful detail how to worship and come into the presence of the Almighty. And all of that is taught in the great giving of the tabernacle, which is all in symbol. Because each part of how that tabernacle is to be built And those of you who have artistic tendencies, God loves you. And sometimes he speaks, especially through art. And he gives them this. And it's beautiful and powerful. And of course, the Jews have reveled throughout the years of showing how each part of the tabernacle means this spiritually. Well, he's given them all this, but it takes a long time. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. The people are down in the valley. So go to chapter 32. And go to verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that will go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Are they grateful? How do they refer to him? This Moses... Let me remind you of something. Um, I'm a school teacher. Um, I'm going to see them all tomorrow. In fact, I'll see all four of my classes tomorrow. Okay? You say, boy, did they hang on your every word? No. About 100 of them will have a paper due, either Tuesday or Wednesday, five. You say, well, they all working hard. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. And for the last two weeks, I've opened every class saying, by the way, would you like some help on this part of your paper? Oh, yeah. And then I can tell when they turn parts of it in for proofing, they haven't listened to a darn thing I've said. So I say it again and I say it again and I say it again. And then I got an email this weekend and this, this, this person says, um, how do we do this? And I was thinking, oh, my God, the lights were on, but nobody was home in that class. And you say, they blow your words off? Yeah. You say, well, what's the deal with this semester? I don't know. It's the same group last semester. <laughs> you say, well, your children certainly must know, you know, my dad's a Bible professor and we hang on his every word. I wish. Is that really what leadership is all about? 
You say, well, I want to be respected. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't have children then. <laughs> Let me share something else with you. If you have to be respected at all times, then either learn how to bully people or stay out of the ministry. You say, no, I want the, the honor that comes. Oh, you sit down and you talk to Pastor Manny. And you'll see the, the weariness and the heartbreak. Moses doesn't have the, the greatest group. He's gone for one month and they turn on him. Watch what happens. And they said to Aaron, um, come, make us gods that will go before us. And Aaron said to them, well, break off the gold earrings which are in your ears of your sons and your daughters and, and bring them to me. And so they broke off the golden earrings which they had in their ears and they brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a, a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Is that idolatry? Is that making an image? And have they blown off God? So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow was a feast to the Lord, which, of course, wasn't the case. Most religion is phony. And then they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, to drink and rose to play, which probably means there was an orgy. They broke some other commandments. Now, all the time this is going on, where's Brother Moses? He's up in the mountain with God. Okay, go to verse 7. Who speaks first? The Lord. You see, why did you point that out? Well, remember this. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down. For your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've, a turn, they've turned quickly aside out of the way I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a what? Stiff-necked or stubborn people. Notice the Lord says it's not an idolatrous people. It wasn't the calf per se. It was the state of the heart that made the calf. Are these people teachable? Are they changing? Is Moses changing? Remember, he changes after from seeing the bush to... Even by chapter 5, he's changing. And then by chapter 14, he's got faith. But they aren't changing. And they've seen the same material, the same miracles, the same events. What's the difference? Well, then it goes on. The Lord's still talking. He says, Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I will consume them. And we've seen in Egypt he can do this. And I will make of you a great nation. You know, there's all kinds of pastors here in L.A. that if God came to them and said, 
I'll, I'll totally tear apart your church, but you'll still be in charge. They would say, okay, I can give you names of pastors. As long as they're still the leader, they're happy. Watch what Moses does. See, the Lord says, I'll make, I'll start all over again, and it'll all come from you, Moses. And then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people? Notice how he changed it? Whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from the harm, from this harm to your people. You see, what's Moses doing? He's arguing with God. He's trying to persuade God and he gives God a reason. God's a reasonable person. So you have to give him reasons. And he says, well, here's the reason. You'll look bad, God. It'll ruin your image. Is God insecure and worried about his image? Is God a politician? Is this a good argument? Not really. He's still the Lord of the universe no matter what the Egyptians think. So he has argument number two. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land I have spoken of I will give to your descendants that they may inherit it forever. If God killed every Israelite that day but Moses and then from Moses rebuilt the nation, will he have kept his word to Abraham? Yeah, because who's Abraham from? I mean, uh, Moses. He's from Abraham. Is this a good argument? Now, so look at verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Is that a bit strange? But let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. Who started the conversation? Who let Moses know before he saw it firsthand what the Israelites were doing? What happened when Moses got down and saw them? Do you remember that? Do you remember the story? You guys seen the cartoon? I love cartoons. Remember, he went crazy. What did he do with that calf? Did he just destroy it? He ground it to powder powder, mixed it with water, and force-fed it to them. On a scale of 1 to 10, how angry was he? And how many Israelites died by the sword? Under whose direction? 3,000. How ticked was he? Do you think he would have ever prayed if he'd have sought instead of hearing it first? Who set him up to pray? God. And of course, Moses calms down. At the end of chapter 32, he turns around and he says, you know, you guys are idiots. But I'm going to go up and see what I can do for you. And he goes up and he says, Lord, I offer you my eternal soul in their exchange. And the Lord says, thank you, but no thank you. 
I will do what is fair, but I won't kill him. Then the Lord tells him in chapter 33, okay, get him going, get him up, take him to the land. I made my promise. I will send an angel in front of you and he will deliver you and give you the land. I'll keep my word. But I myself will not go with you because you're stiff-necked, you're unteachable, you can't get you guys to do anything. I will not go with you. And Moses turns around and says, okay, then we're not going. Isn't that, is that a good threat? God goes, fine. Then it's all died there in the desert. And the Lord, then Moses goes, do you like me? And the God says, oh, you have found favor in my eyes. He says, okay, if you like me, you have to accept them. Chapter 33, verse 12. And then he starts arguing with God for the third time. And he says, we will not move from here unless you go with us. Because he knows now that the key to everything is God himself, not the gifts. He wants the Lord. He knows that people need the Lord. And finally the Lord says, all right, I'll go with you. And then in chapter 34, <laughs> Moses says, you know, and we need to be your people again. And God says, all right. Who is Moses? Who prays for people who don't appreciate him and don't listen to him and don't respect him. If you don't pray, you're not a leader of God. You're not a godly parent. You say, I'm godly, I make my kids do the right things and I tell them they're wrong and I condemn them. Yeah, well, good. Anybody can do that. I love America, and I tell them where they're wrong. Nah, if you only love America, if you pray for America. I have a, a friend who's a minister, kind of a relative, some way, shape, or form. And uh, you call him an uncle, but he's not technically an uncle. But he's really influenced me over the years. And when he turned 70, he was running a very wealthy church. And uh, he had sacrificed for this church many times. At one time, he worked for a whole year and a half without a salary, and the church never knew it. And um, so uh, when he turned 70, he called me up. He says, uh, Bruce, why don't you come and speak to my men? And I said, I'd be honored. So I came, and then we did. Then during one of the breaks during, one of the, the, during the conference, he and I and, and his brother and some of the men, we, we went over to Mount Hermon because we were at another camp. And they had a neat bookstore there. We were walking through it. And it was so cool to be with this guy because he's kind of like an uncle. You know, and I call him Uncle Wayne. And, and then he turned to me and he says, you know, Bruce, I'm 70. And when you don't have many pennies left, you want to spend them well. He then resigned from the church, works for an organization that raises money for uh, AIDS orphans in Africa. He works for a dollar a year. He sold his house and lives off the proceeds. And he ain't got too many years left. He's been spending them well. That's a neat, you know. And you say, how did he start out that way? How did he get that way? This is a real minister. Yeah, this is. You know, when he was in high school, the Lord showed him that all the kids he was going to high school with were going to go to hell. So he would drive down Main Street of the little town he grew up in, pull over to the side, turn the car off, and weep and pray for his high school. 
That's what a Moses is. Here's my question to you. How do you move from being an Israelite to a Moses? What's the difference? They both saw the same things. He seems to be speaking to two types. He seems to be warning the Israelites not to be stiff-necked. And he seems to be painting this picture of this fallible and an imperfect but amazing man named Moses. How do you move from being self-centered and it's all about me and you never are thankful for anything and you're always unhappy to this Moses who seems to take all kinds of guff and then gets on his knees and saves these people time and time again. How do you move from the one to the other? Let me make one suggestion. Remember when Jesus is on the seashore and he's preaching to the crowds, but he doesn't want to be pushed off into the water, so he gets into a boat. Whose boat was that? Do you know that story? It's in Luke 5. It's Peter's boat. And then when Jesus gets done, Jesus is fair. He's much like this father in the Old Testament. He tries to pay Peter for the use of the boat. So he says, you didn't catch a thing last night. Go out in the middle of the water and throw your nets out. And Peter goes, oh, rabbis, they know nothing about the work world. And he tells Jesus that. But you don't, you don't be rude to a rabbi. So he goes and throws the nets over. What happens? He catches so much, he fit, so much fish, the boat starts to sink. So he calls for his buddies. They come over and both start, boats start to sink. And Peter freaks out. He falls on his knees and says, Oh my God, I'm in the presence of God. Get away. I know who I am now. Get away. And then Jesus, much like his father, says, Chill out. Don't be afraid. Those famous words. He says, From now on, it ain't going to be about Peter. It's going to be about others. I'm going to make you a fisher of what? Then what does Peter do? He walks away from the catch. What did Moses do that was different that the Israelites never did? He left Midian. He put his life on the line and went to tell a fearful, in a fearful way, tell a man, the most powerful man on earth in that region of the world, um, I want to ruin your economy because I've talked to a bush. I think until you leave Midian and until you put yourself in jeopardy because God has told you to do it, you will never, ever get close to God no matter how many miracles and no matter how much great preaching and no matter how many good people you see. Until you leave the nets or leave Midian, you'll never change. And that, see, is the whole goal. See, God wasn't just trying to make Moses a good boy. He wanted to make Moses like himself. Who's praying on the cross for others? Jesus. And what does he want the disciples to be? Like him. He wants them to be the message in the flesh. And that's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for the young people in this, this, this church. He doesn't just be nice kids that don't you know, drive their parents crazy and are finally grateful. He wants them to be Moses's. He wants them to be him. He wants them to be prayers for others, no matter how they're treated. He wants your children 
to be as loving towards their children as you are towards them. That's the goal. Then you've succeeded. I'm not a success if my students walk out of my class and they go, boy, Dr. B is such a good teacher. I haven't done anything. I'm only a success if they leave and they go out and they love the world. At cost. At cost. At great risk. Because no one gets to God who doesn't risk. You can see God and what He does, but you don't get to God until the other happens. That's what our prayer is, isn't it? We want our children, I want my children, I want my students to replace me. And you want your children and the children of this church to replace you. And you want to have a nation someday that isn't worried about making sure none of their taxes go up as they don't even care about that. All they care about is everybody in the world gets a free shake. They don't want to dominate the world. They want to love it. Then we'd be a great nation. Then we'd be a great city. Then we'd be a great people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're so patient with people like Moses who argue with you all the time. And yet, finally, Lord, I think all of us have argued. May all of us someday learn to lead Midian in, in, in various ways because it will be different, Lord, for each of us. And Father, may we then learn to get on our knees and no matter how we're treated, we're going to, to, to intercede. We're going to pray. We're going to beg you to listen to us in the heart that you have put in us for other people. Father, change us into Moses's. And then, Father, we want something more, too. We don't want to be greedy, but we think you want us to want this. We want our children and the people we pray for to be Moses's, too. Father, do this. We ask this of you. And we ask it in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.